Thanks, Christian. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. We're really glad to have you with us this morning. As we start um, our teaching time, as we do each week, we want to take a moment just to put our stuff down. I know we just told you to pick it up. Just put it down for a sec. And, and we want to embrace the spirit of Psalm 4610, which says, be still, or one translation says, cease your striving and know that I'm God. And so let's just take a moment to create space for our Father to speak to us this morning. And so just take a deep breath in, a deep breath out, and let's ask God to just kind of speak to us in a way that we can hear this morning, and I'll pray for us. Jesus, we welcome you into this place. We, your servants, are listening. Would you speak in a way that we can understand and respond to your invitation to to come away with you in the presence of our Father and find true rest? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, uh, my wife Emily got into running half marathons. So we were living in South Florida and uh, as you can tell uh, by my physical appearance, not much of a runner, long-distance runner. I have more of a baseball player's body to carry. If you don't know what that means, just carry it all kind of right in here. Not good for a long-distance running. Uh, I, was the fa- I think it was the fastest 40-yard uh, runner on my high school team, and I was the last place 100-yard dash person on my. So somewhere my sweet spot is under 50 yards. But uh, Emily got interested in, in running, and one of the things that I learned th- vicariously through her experience, she ran... Uh, some in South Florida, and then the, the half marathon here in Indy. I think it was the hottest, 2012, the hottest half marathon ever. Like, people were passing out. It's crazy. But one of the key lessons in training and watching her train was that uh, there's a really important principle of learning to find your pace when it comes to running, right? So uh, the huge difference between a six-minute pace. I ran in high school. I ran uh, ages ago, eons ago, like a five-and-a-half-minute mile, right? So now uh, my pace is probably more along the... 10 to 11 minute, uh, you know, thing. But Emily, you know, kind of had to learn how to find her pace. And then when you're running a marathon, you've also got to find other people who are running your pace. And then you've got to learn to pace with them. And as you pace with them, you're then able to kind of sustain over the course of the marathon uh, your, your goals. Um, I remember learning this lesson about pacing during quarantine, which just gives me like, uh, you know, anxiety thinking about March 2020. But we got in the habit of running with my teenage, I got in the habit of running with my teenage sons. And I remember starting out, I was running about an eight and a half, nine minute uh, mile. And again, I, I don't love running more than a mile. And so my son uh, initially started, my oldest, uh, kind of running behind me, which I thought was crazy because he's 6'1", he has this really lanky body. He's, he's got like the perfect, I just so envy his, he's got like the runner's body. He just runs forever and he's never tired. And I was just like, dude, come on, like catch up. And I, and I forgot, like there's a pacing process where you have to learn how to push your body in the appropriate ways. He was beginning cross country. 
And um, so I was kind of usually a little bit ahead of him trying to bring him on. And then one day we went outside to run and he literally took off sprinting, or at least it felt like sprinting to me. And I'm like trying to catch up. And my body's like, nope, you're not doing that. And I, I tried to catch up and I get side splints and I'm you know, basically about to you know, hurl there in the street. And I was like, hey, you should probably slow down. You're not going to be able to keep up the pace. Well, not only did he keep up the pace, he, he destroyed my pace and his previous paces. And again, I was reminded that, you know, pacing is super important for any sort of uh, flourishing. And that's true. Uh, finding the right pace is critical not just for marathons, but it's also critical for a fruitful spiritual life. Dallas Willard, uh, the great uh, spiritual formation writer, said one time to a mentee, Uh, When he was asked the question, what is the greatest threat to our spiritual lives? He said this, hurry is one of the great enemies of spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the great threat to your flourishing as a disciple of Jesus? I'm sure maybe we'd think about, you know, different things happening in our society. We'd think about social media, whatever. But there's some wisdom to this. Dallas Willard says it's actually the hurry underneath that drives the frenetic pace of, what, of the way that we live our lives that is the problem. And when you think about that, and you think about some of the challenges to being unhurried um, and some of the, the possibilities for the future, there, there is this tension, right? We live in both a, kind of a, a society where there's a social architecture to hurry, um, we're possibly the first culture that's institutionalized and normalized hurry as a sort of virtue. Like, when was the last time you got together with somebody and you know that weird question we do in America, like, how are you doing? And the response is always what? I'm so not busy. I have so much margin. My life's so slow. No, like, that's the person you're like, I don't want to be around them. You know, but the, the answer is usually what? I am busy, right? Which usually can be translated to I am hurried. I am living a frenetic pace. As a person who struggled with hurry, um, for me, it's always this sense of feeling like, I don't know if this how it resonates with you, but of being behind, right? Like I'm trying to catch up to some standard. I'm trying to catch up to some expectation. We live in a society where there are all these kind of different cross currents and pressures of speed and efficiency and control and success and achievement. Particularly for me, like comparison is, is a real struggle when you get on social media, you see other people that are like in your reference group that are doing things and you feel like, ah, oh, I'm behind as a parent, I'm behind as a pastor, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. And there's this kind of competitiveness that's woven into uh, our society where we feel like we have to kind of jockey for status and honor in this unsustainable, violent, and deadly pace of hurry. I remember uh, feeling this very acutely when my son, my, my second oldest, was in second grade. We lived in Hamilton County for a while, and I was coaching his basketball team. And uh, some dad approached me at practice, and he just said, hey, your son's a great basketball player. And I was like, thanks. I mean, it's second grade. It's like he can, you know, throw a couple balls into the hoop. He's, he's, he's good for a second grader. And he's like, well, hey, you should play travel. Have you thought about doing travel basketball? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, you know, if you don't get into travel basketball now in second grade, he won't be able to play for Carmel High School. And as an outsider, I was like, well, that doesn't really mean anything to me, number one. That's not like our life goal for him to play basketball at Carmel High School. But immediately, I begin to feel this anxiety. Like, if I don't get him in this system of travel sports, then we're behind as parents. And so, man, and I've seen that play out over time where people, uh, we create these artificial, this artificial pressure and, and we kind of map out our existence in a linear way. And maybe you call this the post-high school hustle, right? Like 
there's this sense that when you get out of high school, then it's, you got to get into the right college. And then you got to get into the right internships. And you got to get into the right grad school. And then the right fellowships and the right certifications in your job. And then you got to have the right side hustles. And you got to have the right social media presence. And it just contributes to this kind of cycle of hurry. And, um, and it just feels super violent, right? And again, not sustainable. John Ortberg uh, says it like this, hurry is not just a disordered schedule, but it's also a disordered heart, right? So there's something more than just what's kind of on the surface in terms of our society. It's actually something inside of us, but society can kind of prey on that and, and, and aggravate that and provoke and inflame in us a sense of, I've got to, I already feel this sense of being behind. Now I look out in the world in which I live and the architecture of the world is such that it, it pushes that impulse within me, that instinct. It's, it's less like society is saying, you should be in a hurry. And it's more like an instinct or a mood. It's just this feeling that I, I've got to be in a rush all the time or I'm not accomplishing the right things. There was actually a, a, a phrase coined by a cardiologist, Meyer Friedman, a generation ago. He called this hurry sickness. He said it's this continuous struggle to accomplish more and more and more in less and less and less time. And he said he actually began to see this in patients as a physician. He was noticing, you know, the rising blood pressure, heart attacks, all kinds of effects that it was having physiologically on people who were coming in with all kinds of, of anxiety. It's a, it's a spiritual issue at the core, right? Even though we talk about this as more like a, a business thing or kind of a, a life principle. Ronald Rollheiser, in one of my favorite books on spiritual formation, says this, it's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested, and he's writing, you know, 20 years ago, uh, in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us, than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. So what I want to talk about just for our brief time together this morning is part kind of capping off our series on preaching the gospel, we kind of want to bring that to an end by talking about this idea of pacing with Jesus. It's kind of also like very timely for us as we think about Labor Day weekend, which is essentially a time to kind of celebrate our idolatry of work in a sense, and to have like a couple days where we pretend like we really rest. But we come into this space this weekend, I don't know about you, but just feeling fragmented, feeling exhausted, and we're like, oh, if I just get that extra day off on Monday, then everything's going to be, and we know that's a myth, right? Like, so there's something deeper happening, so I want to kind of tap into that. And also, every fall, we take some time to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to refocus us as a church on formation, and so this is kind of a a setup for the kind of life that's going to enable the other stuff we talk about this fall to be possible for us. And so we want to dial into and really just ask this question. How do we pace our lives in such a way that we live what Paul calls the life that is truly life without burning out on the one hand or becoming complacent on the other? How do we live the fullness of life that we see Jesus inviting his disciples in here that, is neither, that neither leads to burnout when we're in our 40s or 50s or 60s or 20s now or complacency? on the other side. And so getting into the text here, we see that Jesus addresses here this invitation. Verse 30, Mark chapter 6, 
the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So the broader context of the book of Mark and Mark chapter 1, Jesus shows up and he announces the good news of the kingdom. We've been talking about this for weeks. The kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Repent, turn away from trying to establish your own kingdom and trust in Jesus to be the one who satisfies those longings that you have for goodness and truth and beauty and human flourishing. And so Jesus then calls and commissions 12 disciples to go out and to begin to proclaim that good news. And that really carries us through the early chapters of Mark. And there's such a response as they're preaching the gospel, they're healing people. People had never seen anything like this in their time. Again, a minority community of people who all of a sudden become the center point of God's activity in the world. And, and as you can imagine, there is this swell of energy and the crowds begin to gather around Jesus. And we're immediately clued into a challenge that Jesus faced that we also face as his disciples. Many people were coming and going so that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. I mean, have you ever had like a day like that at work? I mean, I think remote work in some ways makes this worse. We're like, I was talking to a pastor the day and he was talking about kind of uh, the peak of COVID, how there would be days when he's like, I'm literally on a call from morning until night, and I only had time to go to the bathroom. But like, we would see this as like a virtue point, right? Like, oh, I was so busy today. I was so productive. I only had time to go to the bathroom. I didn't even have time to eat. And notice, notice the crowds are, are, are in this kind of hurry, right? They're, they're rushing. It says, they went away in the boat, verse 32, if you go on, by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them, Jesus and his disciples, leaving and they recognized them, and here's the key, they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. Another translation says the crowds hurried ahead of Jesus and awaited his arrival. So let's talk for a moment about the hurried crowds, because it was something that Jesus had to contend with on a regular basis. Now, I want to be fair. Oftentimes, we read, uh, I read a lot of, I've read a lot of commentaries on Jesus and the crowds, and oftentimes we read the crowds through middle-class lenses, and we forget a very important point about who these people are. This is a minority community on the fringes of Roman society, right? So let's, let's give a little bit of grace to the desperation. If you've ever, if you grew up in poverty and you know what it's like to be hungry, you know what it's like to be uh, paralyzed, you know what it's like to have some sort of a disability in a, in a world that, that marginalizes those realities, um, you can understand how them being on the other side of those structures of society that left them poor and marginalized and hungry and hurting would create a sort of desperation to press into Jesus, right? So let's just Let's acknowledge that. Let's give some grace for that. But even as we acknowledge that, let's not overlook the fact that despite this reality, Jesus sees that collective energy and, that, and the expectations and the pace that the massive crowds are creating as deeply problematic and flawed, right, for himself and for his disciples. One of the, um, uh, an interesting passage in John chapter 2 when Jesus is confronted with the crowds and he's performing signs and wonders and miracles, the crowds are just overwhelming, right? Like they're pressing in. 
And in John chapter 2, it says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to the crowd since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man. He himself knew what was in man. He knew the kind of anxiety in the soul that's being carried with this mass movement of people, and he is choosing to consciously refuse to get caught up in the hype and the hysteria of the crowds. Now, don't mistake this for some sort of like clinical, clinically detached Jesus who just doesn't care and he's worried about his personal boundaries or whatever. This is not self-care for Jesus, right? Like Jesus loved these people, right? He had a deep compassion for them, but he refused to depend on them, to trust in them, because he knew them to be undependable. He knew the crowds did not come to him to just listen to his teaching, to know him better, to follow him. Um, They came to him because they wanted something from him, right? They came to him because they wanted signs. They wanted miracles. Sometimes they wanted power, which again, all appropriate things to long for as human beings, but not in the way that they were wanting them to come about. The crowds were fickle. The crowds were unpredictable, right? Think about all of the interactions that Jesus has with the crowds. I mean, there are moments when they get so caught up. This is just like, you know, kind of mass populism, like we see this here in the Gospels, but they get so caught up in the hype of the moment. Remember they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff one time? They tried to throw him off a cliff they, they ridiculed him and mocked him at different times. And then, and then in the end, this crowd that's so eager to press into Jesus on Palm Sunday is the same group of people saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds essentially want more, and they want it now. That's the cry of the crowds. Give us more and give it to us right now. One author says, the crowds traveled with Jesus but they weren't following Jesus. And I love the picture that we get of Jesus in the midst of this. I love the presence that Jesus brings and the way that he teaches us how we are to think about kind of the pressure and the drivenness of the crowds around us in our own day. Jesus shows us an image of an unhurried Savior. In the midst of the hurried crowds, we see the beauty of an unhurried Savior Notice Jesus doesn't do what you and I would do with crowds. When crowds gather around our business, when crowds gather around our nonprofits, our churches, this would be the moment where you leverage all of your credibility to scale up and to speed up, right? That's just common sense in our modern time. But notice Jesus is not interested in leveraging his platform, if you want to call it that, or his influence to draw a crowd, or to create a brand or a mass movement. He could have done it. Jesus is interested in calling and forming disciples. Jesus is interested in calling and forming apprentices who are learning to live the way of love in an anxious world. And the way of love takes time. So Jesus resists the temptations of the crowd to speed up his ministry. I mean, how many times does Jesus say in the book of John, one of the key themes in the book of John, if you read it is, it's not my time. Don't try to push me. I'll go when I'm ready, but it's not my time. And he he almost makes people take these vows of secrecy. Like, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. He's not embarrassed about being the Messiah, but there's an internal pace that Jesus is walking with as the unhurried Savior 
that we have to pay attention to. He will not allow himself to be hurried by the crowds into premature kingdom work or doing his kingdom work at a pace that is not aligned with his values as the Messiah. I love this phrase. I don't remember who said it first, but I'm going to steal it and just tell you that somebody said it. Uh, Jesus was always busy, but never in a hurry. Jesus was always busy. So I'm not talking about not being busy. I'm not talking about life being full. I'm not talking about some utopia where you like escape out into nature and become a monk. That's not what Jesus is doing here, right? He's busy, but he's never in a hurry. There's a way to be busy and not be in a hurry. Dallas Willard again was once asked, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? I'm going to put that before you. What's the word that you would use to describe the person in the life of Jesus? Savior, Lord, compassionate, miracle worker. Dallas Willard said this, relaxed. He was relaxed. He had this kind of relaxed urgency to, to create a paradox about his life. And you see the way that he interacts with the crowds in that relaxed way. I mean, just imagine all of the pressure, all of the noise, all of the temptation. And Jesus does crazy things like this. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how he resists the hurry of the crowds. Luke chapter 5, the news about Jesus spread even more. Large crowds would come together to hear him, to be healed of their sicknesses. And what does Jesus do? He often often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. I mean, imagine that. Like, you're in the moment. The disciples are like, yes, this is our guy. Yes, God is here. The Messiah is here. All of the promises of Isaiah are coming true. And everybody's like, hey, somebody go get Jesus. And they're like, where'd he go? And Jesus is like hightailing it off into the wilderness and like, Pete, I'll see you guys tomorrow. What? I mean, you can imagine how disorienting this would have been for his disciples. Luke chapter 11, as the crowds were increasing, Jesus started ramping up crazy talk. Like Jesus was, he was that awkward guy that never had the right word to say at the right moment from a human perspective. Like the crowds are increasing and everybody's like, hey, this is the time. Let's soft sell Jesus. Let's like keep this going, you know, not too intense, not too crazy. And what does Jesus say? This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign but no sign will be given. I'm not giving you what you think you want. I'm gonna give you what you need. And then we see that the crowds leave. And Jesus says to his disciples in John 8, are you going to leave too? And I love, love, one of my favorite Bible verses is Peter looks at Jesus and he says, where else are we gonna go? (laughs) That's like the greatest declaration. It's like the greatest faith, non-faith declaration ever, right? Like, oh, there's no better option. So I guess we're gonna stay with you. You have the words of life. Luke 14, great crowds were traveling with Jesus. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, does not hate his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's not literally saying there, by the way, we've talked about this before, that you're to hate your family. He's saying relative to your commitment and allegiance to Jesus, Jesus must be first. And everything else will feel like hatred in comparison. But he doesn't feel that need to try to draw people on the basis of self-interest, but rather self-sacrifice. And of course, what you win them with is what you keep them with. 
John chapter 11, even his own disciples were pressuring him at different moments, and he had to resist this kind of energy from his own inner circle. You remember the story in John 11 when Lazarus dies, and everybody's freaking out. This is one of Jesus' best friends, right? Mary, Martha, Lazarus, their uh, home is a place that Jesus frequented often. Lazarus gets sick, and he hears about it. And, and this is, again, just an incredibly striking passage in, in verses 5 through 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha, loved her sister, loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was, and he didn't go. The disciples are like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, we've got to hurry to get there. And Jesus, after hearing that he's sick, is like, hey, sometimes when you, sometimes when you think that you're hurrying towards God's purposes, you're not. And he said, I'm glad for your sake that I'm not there right now because what I'm about to do is going to lead to you actually believing in me. So delay, what feels like delay is often the very purposes of God. Sometimes our hurry is actually something that delays what God wants to do in the world. And so all of this to say, why, why was Jesus so slow in what he was doing? I mean, we see this. Like, you just, you can't hurry Jesus. He doesn't bend to your agenda. He doesn't bend to anyone's agenda. I think the reason that Jesus was so unhurried is a very simple one, and yet it's one that we often forget. His unhurrying was about love, right? Unhurrying is about love. Hurry destroys our capacity to give and receive love with God and with other people. Being unhurried creates space for us to experience, to receive, and to give love to God and to other people. But it requires a certain kind of pace. Kosuke Kiyama, who's a Japanese theologian, wrote a great book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three miles an hour is apparently like the average speed of walking, right? So he's talking about Jesus walking instead of taking a chariot or a horse uh, in his ministry. And here's what he says. God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed, It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speed, since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice or not, whether we are currently hit by storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore, it is the speed the love of God Think about that for a second. Unhurrying creates space for love. Two things that we see in the life of Jesus. One is that slowing down creates space to give and receive love with his Father. That's what we call communion, right, in in the language of spirituality. To be able to give and to receive love, right? Jesus tells his disciples again here, come away by yourselves to a remote place to rest for a while. That word for remote place is the word aremos. If you've been around Soma a while, you know we talk about the aremos a lot. This word can be translated wilderness, desert, deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, quiet place, lonely place. It's a word used of Jesus as a rhythm 10 times in the book of Luke, right? This is something Jesus frequently did. He withdrew, not because he was an introvert and he needed me time. Jesus withdrew, it says, to be with his Father. Solitude is not about being alone. Solitude is about being alone in the presence of our Father. 
So it's different than isolation. It's a place that Jesus would go to crowd out all the other voices, right? The voice of Satan, the voice of the crowds, just to get in close proximity and intimacy with his father and to hear those words spoken over him at his baptism and spoken over him at his transfiguration on the mountain in front of the disciples. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Beloved community, friends of Jesus, we need to hear those words more than we need to hear any other words every single day. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter in whom he's well pleased. That, we need to hear that every single day. We need to create space, unhurried space, to receive that, not just to hear it like mentally, but to drop down 12 inches to hear it with our hearts to internalize it until it becomes the script, till it becomes the anthem of our lives. Jesus did that a lot. As a matter of fact, the more popular Jesus becomes in the book here in the Gospels, the more the demands for his time and attention increase, the more frequently he withdrew to hear the voice of his Father. Second thing is that slowing down created space for compassion. I mean, I love the realism of this passage Right? Like they get away, but notice they don't go to like some 30 day spa and hotel retreat. Okay? They like get on a boat, and it, whether it takes minutes or it takes hours, by the time they get to the other side, notice the crowd runs ahead. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, I don't know about you, tired parents in the room, right? I'm getting on that boat, I'm like anchoring down in the middle, and I'm not coming back to shore for a while. I'm just not. I'm exhausted. And, and, and if I do show up on the other side and, and the, the proverbial kids are out there screaming for my attention, I'm angry at that point. Like, how dare you invade my solitude? This is, this is my time, right? You get your time. This is my time. And yet Jesus didn't do that. He has compassion. And my point in saying this is I don't think that Jesus has that compassion if he doesn't spend those minutes and hours alone in the presence of his father on the boat. The source of the compassion and the ability to constantly extend, that word compassion is the Greek word splagnizomai. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It means from the bowels, like just from the depths. it's, It's an instinct. I'm compassionate sometimes, not very often, as a behavior. I want to become that. Jesus is compassionate as an instinct, and that instinct arises from this deep place of communion with God, and then it just spills out. And that's why we need this unhurried space to be able to slow down, because love has to kind of marinate. Love has to steep. It's like tea, right? You just, it's not like instant coffee. It's not, you know, God doesn't do Keurig when it comes to like love, right? He, he's, he's a tea guy, right? You steep. It's slow. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, the very first characteristic of love, when you hear this read at weddings all the time, love is what? Patient. Long-suffering is the word. Love is patient. It takes time. When we rush, bad things happen. This week, um, Emily and I were coming back from lunch, and I'm preaching on being unhurried, and I'm feeling hurried. Come back to the office. We have a meeting at one. We're interviewing a staff member for a potential position, and uh, we walk in, and there's a man sitting in our parking lot, and he looks distressed. He looks like he needs help. My wife's like, should we, we should probably ask him if he needs anything. And I was like, babe, it's 1253. We have a meeting at one. No, we don't have time to do that. Like, let's get on inside. 
She's like, and I love her, man. My wife does not have my pace. And that is one of the things I just treasure about her. She does not have my pace. And so she's just like, hey, I think we should ask if he needs anything. I'm like, okay, great. Go ask him if he needs anything. I'll be here to support you. I'm going to get the Zoom call set up. <laughs> Turns out, yes, like he needed some food and he needs some water. And here I am worried about if, if we say yes to this interruption, it's going to wreck the rest of my day. And we often think that way about interruptions. They're interruptions. They're getting in the way of the real work of ministry. But the reality is the interruptions are often the ministry. And we forget that God has a plan that supersedes our own. And so it creates space to kind of have that heart space to see, to respond with compassion. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, one of the biggest issues in that story is just the hurry of people running by and not seeing, not slowing down to create space. So Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves with me to a remote place and rest for a while. Imitate my way of life. This is Jesus' imitation. I spend time getting away with my Father on a regular basis to give and receive love, and then I give that to other people. Now you come and imitate my way of life. Be with me, Jesus says, this is what it means to be a disciple. Be with me so that you can become like me and so you can start doing the things that I do in the world. That's the heart of discipleship. My uh, therapist a couple years ago had the saying, he would always say, Jesus' way of life is just as inspired as his message. And we often forget that. Jesus says, I am the truth, but I'm also the way. And so Jesus is inviting us into a way of unhurried life. And this invitation is not just for his disciples then. This is for us as disciples now, an unhurried, slowed down way of being, right? Uh, What you might just kind of define as like pacing with Jesus under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And there's two kind of ditches we want to avoid here as we think about what it means to actually pace with Jesus. The first ditch is what Jesus calls in Matthew 6 a pagan pace. As we think about just some of the challenges in our own lives, we see these same temptations. Now, a pagan pace, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 32, do not worry, don't be anxious, saying, what are we to eat or what, are we, what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run, they hurry after these things. And yet your heavenly Father knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Pagan pace is one that's driven by the idols of efficiency. One that's driven by control, selfish ambition, reactivity, a scarcity mentality about life, a sense of exaggerated responsibility that leads to worrying about things all the time, a misdiagnosed complexity that sees all the problems as the complexity of the world while ignoring the problems internally that drive that kind of complexity. Thomas Merton, who was a very actively engaged disciple of Jesus, says this about the the temptation to a pagan pace. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs. And, and this is a great like descriptor of Midtown and the north side of Indianapolis, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. 
It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. When we are being driven by life, we are doing lots of things, but we're not always doing the best things. And we don't have the wisdom to discern between something good and something that is a calling from God. And oftentimes we get burned out and we blame God. God, I'm so busy doing this. Why'd you call me to do all this stuff? And I have to think God sometimes is like looking at us like, did I call you to do that? Like, is the reason you're burned out because you're doing things that I never called you to do in the first place out of a sense of obligation or reactivity or people pleasing? So that's... That's a challenge for us. There's also an equal and opposite challenge, right? And that's not a pagan pace, but a complacent pace. A complacent pace sees all of the hurry over here and says, uh-uh, not me. I'm going to come over here, and, and I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to have my boundaries, and I'm going to eliminate activity, and just I'm going to Sabbath six days a week. You know, it's, it's the opposite. It's like the self-care movement, right? It's like, I'm going to care for me. I'm going to make sure I'm, I've got my stuff straight. I've got everything in order and it becomes a, a sort of like insular, like, um, you know, I, I don't know what the, what the exactly the right word is. I had a word that just uh, slipped my mind. A self-indulgence. That's the word I'm looking for. A self-indulgence, right, that, that begins to see kind of unproductivity and boundaries as everything, right, and seeks to kind of protect ourselves from all the violence that we see happening in the world. And again, you know me, like I've gotten in tons of trouble here. I'm for self-care. I'm, I'm for boundaries. I'm for appropriate limitations, capacity, self-awareness, all of that. But that can't be the goal, right? That can't be the end game. That is, that is just selfishness by another name. And it becomes, it brings us into a space of not being appropriately productive and effective in the kingdom work that God has given to us. And so there's a great little um, paradigm that we taught through in the Missional Life class for some of you that went through that last year, uh, a framework here called the human function curve. And, th- and this is kind of the idea that we have pressure that's kind of coming at us from all directions. There's what's called in psychology eustress, which is like positive stress. And then there's distress, which is negative stress. So not all stress is bad, right? And, and actually to flourish as human beings, the social sciences tell us, we need appropriate pressure to thrive. And so what we want to avoid is, on the one hand, a kind of complacency that leads to boredom and then all kinds of escapism and withdrawal. And on the other hand, we need to avoid a kind of fatal pagan pace that leads us to exhaustion and breakdown and burnout. And the sacred pace, what uh, one business guy, one Christian business guy calls a sacred pace, I love that language, a sacred pace, invites us into this middle space where we're working and walking and pacing with Jesus under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So there's a fullness to our activity in the world, but it's not being driven by the hurry around us. It's being driven by this sense of internal call from God and the Holy Spirit on our lives and then the real needs of the people right in front of us. I love Jesus' words here. I think this is, this is Jesus' heart for like stressed out, burned out people I love Matthew 11, Eugene Peterson's translation of this. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. That's pacing with Jesus. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep Company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. John Wesley 
who planted, his movement planted tons of churches here in, in Indy. Nobody would ever mistake Wesley for uh, a lazy person. Very productive. Here's what he had to say about productivity. Though I'm always in haste, I'm never in a hurry because I never undertake more work than I can go through with a calmness of spirit. That's what we want. That calmness of spirit comes from a deep life with God, a non-anxious presence in the world, an unhurried way of being that comes from apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, the Lord of the easy yoke. So what does it look like in closing here for us to begin to practice this way of life, to begin to step into practices of slowing ourselves down, not just externally, but internally, right? That's the invitation. It's to slow down the internal pace to be with Jesus, receive and give love from our Father in the Spirit, and then to begin to create a life, external rhythms that flow out of that, that allow us to live at that appropriate pace of, yes, full ministry, yes, teaching, yes, preaching the gospel, yes, healing, but also come away with me, right? Come away with me to a place and receive the rest that God wants to give to you, these alternating rhythms of work and rest. I, this is very personal to me. Um, some of you guys maybe have been through AA, and, uh, and I don't say this lightly. Uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, maybe some of you have challenges with alcoholism or addictions. I am a recovering speed addict. I am a person who has struggled with pacing, right? I walk fast. I, you know, I preach, I talk fast. Like, my kids laugh at me. Like, I get in the car, and they're like, why is it you stick your key? And it's like the, mo- it's like the simultaneous movement of sticking your key in and putting your feet on the gas, and like, like, we're off. Just like in front of our house. Like, where, what's, why are you in such a hurry? It got so bad in my 20s. I was so ambitious, so chasing things with such an unsustainable pace that I started experiencing panic attacks. I literally started having panic attacks. I couldn't sleep, right, for about two years. I had to get into therapy. I had so much internal anxiety. And a lot of it came from not having modeled for me, but also just the internal way I was wired and some of my own sin patterns. Not understanding what it meant to slow down and be with Jesus. And so what I share with you here is just more, like, you can either do this voluntarily or you can do this involuntarily. You can slow down in your 20s and 30s and learn to develop rhythms like this, or you can get to 40 or 50 and have a heart attack and watch your family implode, watch your ministry. And we see this all around us, right? I mean, people's ministries imploding, pastors' ministries imploding. They don't live a slowed down life. And that's not the only reason, but it's something we can choose to do in apprenticeship with Jesus, or we can avoid doing and will happen involuntarily through lots of pain and suffering as we get older. And so, Just two things I just want to commend to you. One is just pacing your inner life, taking time to cultivate an inner awareness of where your soul is being hurried, right? Learning to pay attention to the particular shape of what hurry looks like for you, asking the question, what is the default pace of my heart, my soul? You feel it in your body, right? You know when it's there, but just learning to pay attention, asking the internal questions of, am I doing what I'm doing? Does my schedule, what I'm doing in the world, reflect a sense of calling, or is that driven by a false self with false expectations from myself and society around me? Learning to look at and diagnose some of the symptoms of hurry as they show up in your life. I want to throw up this list from uh, somebody that our staff has learned a lot from, a lady named Ruth Haley Barton. She has a great 
podcast, and she talks about some of the symptoms of hurry that she's noticed in her own life and consulting with a lot of ministry leaders. And I just wonder, like, how many of these show up in our lives, right? When we get irritable, right? Like, I was getting so frustrated with my kids on our trip to Yellowstone. We had 10 days to go to Yellowstone and back. And the first three days I I spent getting frustrated with them because they weren't pacing with me, right? And finally, Emily's just like, "What, what is going on with you? Like, we're on vacation, chill. It's like, yeah, dude, I'm so impatient with my schedule and the way that I want to do this trip. Hypersensitivity, restlessness, compulsive overworking, numbness, escape behaviors, being disconnected from our identity as beloved sons and daughters and our calling in the world, not able to attend to human needs, hoarding energy, slippage in spiritual practices. These are all signs that we may be living a hurried inner life and allowing that to drive our life in the world. And then secondly, just pacing our external rhythms, right? Slowing down and creating rhythms, spiritual practices that help us live in the way of Jesus. Again, Jesus' way of life is just as inspired as his message, as his theology. Many of us were taught spiritual disciplines when we were growing up, but they were disciplines of engagement, right? Like evangelism and Bible study and doing things. But there's another category for spiritual practices called disciplines of abstinence, not doing things so we can create space for love to be birthed in us and to grow in us and to be shared with the world. These are practices like contemplative prayer, silence, solitude, Sabbath rest, right? That's why we have this rule of life. This is an attempt for us as a community to begin to build some of those basic rhythms that we need to pace with Jesus first thing in the morning, at lunchtime, before we go to bed, seasonally, weekly, monthly, right? That's why we as a staff, for our um, staff members, encourage everybody once a month to take a paid time to get out with God and just pray and just be. Now, I know some of you can't do that in business, and that's not realistic, but there are other ways you can experiment with that, right? Like I love in his book, uh, Unhurried Life, Alan Fadling has what he calls five-minute retreats. Next slide here. Just things that you can do to stop throughout the day and pace with Jesus, Slow down to be grateful, right? Five minutes to just make a list of all the ways you're discerning God's goodness at work in your life that day. Breath prayer, right? Like something I use every single day. It's an old tradition that goes back to the early church, just simply stopping in the words of the blind man of Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, take a deep breath in. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Take a deep breath out. There's nothing magical in the formula. It's just a way to center ourselves and ground ourselves in the love of God. Deep breath in deep breath out, being reminded the presence of God is here with me and for me right now. Light a candle, slowly read through scripture or poetry, you know, put on your favorite worship song and just jam it out in your office, man. Put that puppy on mute, put your Zoom thing on mute, go to black screen and just worship while everybody's talking about business, just for a few minutes. Drink your favorite drink. Go for a walk, right? Like, I, and again, I want this to be realistic. Like, I know some of you are moms with small children. You have to figure out what does this look like given your personality. It's going to look different for an introvert than an extrovert. It's going to look different if you have small kids at home versus teenagers or you don't have kids. But we've got to find a way. If Jesus said it's possible, it's got to be possible for busy people with full lives or else it's not true. And therefore, Jesus' way is not true. Maybe it's as simple this week as choosing the slow line in the grocery lane or, or getting in the slow lane and going under the speed limit this week and just seeing what, what comes to the surface as you go 35 instead of 55 down 38. Thank you very much. I have a teenage driver now. 
Maybe it's slowing down your walk, and instead of walking quickly, it's walking slowly and what they used to call strolling and lingering. These are all ways that we learn in our bodies what it looks like to slow down and follow Jesus. So I want to just close by just reminding us that hurry is the enemy of love. Hurry is the enemy of a rich spiritual life. Slow is the way of Jesus. Slow is the way of the kingdom. Slow is the way we learn self-giving love. And I think that we often don't slow down because for many of us, and I'll just say this for myself first and foremost, we have a hard time trusting Jesus, right? Jesus says, come away with me. Right? The invitation is to be with Jesus. And the reasons we are so hurried is because we don't often trust Jesus. If I slow down, if I'm not as productive and efficient in the ways that I think I should, will Jesus be there with me? Is he in my future? Is he guiding and directing and shepherding my path? Or do I have to make things happen myself? And so I just want us to put our stuff down as we close the way that we started with just a moment as we go to communion to confess that breakdown in the trust structures between us and Jesus that can often lead us into a hurried existence. To just remember, again, Psalm 46.10, Be still, cease your striving, know that I am God. I am here with you, for you. I've done all that's needed for you to flourish, right? I lived the life that you couldn't live. I died the death that you should have died. I rose again. I promise that heaven is coming to earth and that your future is secure and guaranteed. Now rest in an abiding confidence in me. So let's just take a moment to do that. Let's just take a moment to rest in the mercy and the grace of Jesus together. And then I'll pray over us and we'll take communion together. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us sinners. Jesus, help us to receive your invitation to come away with you and in you and trusting in you and living and embodying your way. Would you help us to find the rest that our soul, souls long for? And may we, as we live in that restful place with you in loving communion, may that become a gift of compassion that we offer to our neighbors and to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.